Book Two, Chapter Fifteen of Arachne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Arachne by George Ebers. Book Two, Chapter Fifteen. Hermon went, with Philippus and Thyone, on board the ship which was to convey them through the new canal to Pelusium, where the old commandant had to plan all sorts of measures. In the border fortress, the artist was again obliged to exercise patience, for no ship bound to Pergamus or Lesbos could be found in the harbor. Philippus had as much work as he could do, but all his arrangements were made when carrier doves, announced that the surprise intended by the Gauls had been completely thwarted, and his son, Eumedes, was empowered to punish them. The admiral would take his fleet to the Sibonitic mouth of the Nile. Another dove came from King Ptolemy and summoned the old general at once to the capital. Philippus resolved to set off without delay, and, as the way led past that mouth of the Nile, met his son on the voyage. Herman must accompany him and his wife to Alexandria, whence, without entering the city, he could sail for Pergamus. Ships bound to all the ports in the Mediterranean were always in one of the harbors of the capital. A galley ready to weigh anchor was constantly at the disposal of the commandant of the fortress, and the next noon the noble pair, with Herman and his faithful Bios, went on board the Galatea. The weather was dull, and great clouds were sweeping across the sky over the swift vessel, which hugged the coast, and, unless the wind shifted, would reach the narrow tongue of land, pierced by the Sibonitic mouth of the Nile, before sunrise. Though the general and his wife went to rest early, Herman could not endure the close air of the cabin. Wrapped in his cloak, he went on deck. The moon, almost full, was sailing in the sky, sometimes covered by dark clouds, sometimes leaving them behind. Like a swan emerging from the shadow of the thickets along the shore, upon the pure bosom of the lake, it finally floated into the deep azure of the radiant firmament. Herman's heart swelled. How he rejoiced that he was again permitted to behold the starry sky, and satiate his soul with the beauty of creation! What delight it gave him that the eternal wanderers above were no longer soulless forms, that he again saw in the pure silver disk above friendly Selene, in the rolling salt waves of the kingdom of Poseidon. Tomorrow, when the deep blue water was calm, he would greet the sea-god Glaucus, and when the snowy foam crowned the crests of the waves, white-armed Thetis. The wind was no longer an empty sound to him. No, it too came from a deity, all nature had gained a new divine life. Doubtless he felt much nearer to his childhood than before, but he was infinitely less distant from the eternal divinity, and all the forms, so full of meaning, which appeared to him from nature, and from every powerful emotion of his own soul, were waiting to be represented by his art in the noblest forms, those of human beings. There were few with whose nature he had not become familiar in the darkness and solitude that once surrounded him. When he began to create again, he had only to summon them, and he awaited, with the suspense of the general who was in command of new troops on the eve of battle, the success of his own work after the great transformation which had taken place in him. What a stress and tumult! 
he had controlled it since the first hour when he regained his full vision. He would fain have transformed the moon into the sun, the ship into the studio, and begun to model. He knew, too, what he desired to create. He would model an Apollo trampling underfoot, the slain dragon of darkness. He would succeed in this work now, and as he looked up and saw Selene just emerging again from the black cloud island, the thought entered his mind that it was a moonlight night like this when all the unspeakably terrible misfortune occurred, which was now past. Yet neither the calm wanderer above, nor a resentful woman, had exposed him to the persecution of Nemesis. In the stillness of the desert, he had perceived what had brought all this terrible suffering upon him. But he would not repeat it to himself now, for he felt within his soul the power to remain faithful to his best self in the future. With clear eyes he gazed keenly and blithely at the new life. Nothing, least of all, futile self-torturing regret for faults committed, should cloud the fair morning dawning anew for him, which summoned him to active work, to gratitude and love. Uttering a sigh of relief, he paced the deck, now brilliantly illuminated by silvery light, with long strides. The moon above his head reminded him of Ledska. He was no longer angry with her. The means by which she had intended to destroy him had been transformed into a benefit, and while in the desert, he had perceived how often man finally blesses, as the highest gain, what he at first regarded as the most cruel affliction. How distinctly the image of the Beamite again stood before his agitated soul. Had he not loved her once? Or how had it happened that, though his heart was Daphne's and hers alone, he had felt wounded and insulted when his bios, who was leaning over the railing of the deck yonder, gazing at the glittering waves, had informed him that Ledska had been accompanied in her flight from her unloved husband by the Gaul whose life he, Herman, had saved? Was this due to jealousy or merely wounded vanity at being supplanted in the heart which he firmly believed belonged, though only in bitter hate, solely to him? She certainly had not forgotten him, and while the remembrance of her blended with the yearning for Daphne, which never left him, he sat down and gazed out into the darkness, till his head drooped on his breast. Then a dream showed the Beamite to the slumbering man, yet no longer in the guise of a woman, but as the spider Arachne. She increased before his eyes to an enormous size, and alighted upon the pharaohs erected by Sostratus. Uninjured by the flames of the lighthouse, above which she hovered, she wove a net of endlessly long gray threads over the whole city of Alexandria, with its temples, palaces, and halls, harbors, and ships, until Daphne suddenly appeared with a light step, and quietly cut one after the other. Suddenly, a shrill whistle aroused him. It was the signal of the flute player to relieve the rowers. A faint yellow line was now tinging the eastern horizon of the gray, cloudy sky. At his left extended the flat, dull brown coastline, which seemed to be lower than the turbid waves of the restless sea. The cold morning wind was blowing light mists over the absolutely barren shore. Not a tree, not a bush, not a human dwelling was to be seen in this dreary wilderness. Wherever the eye turned, there was nothing but sand and water, which united at the edge of the land. Long lines of surf poured over the arid desert, 
and, as if repelled by the desolation of this strand, returned to the wide sea whence they came. The shrill screams of the seagulls behind the ship, and the hoarse hungry croaking of the ravens on the shore, blended with the roaring of the waves. Herman shuddered at this scene. Shivering, he wrapped his cloak closer around him, yet he did not go to the protecting cabin, but followed the Nauark, who pointed out to him the numerous vessels which, in a wide curve, surrounded the place where the Sebenitic arm of the Nile pierced the tongue of land to empty into the sea. The experienced seamen did not know what ships were doing there, but it was hardly anything good, for ravens in a countless multitude were to be seen on the shore and all moved toward the left. Philippus's appearance on deck interrupted the Nauark. He anxiously showed the birds to the old hero also, and the latter's only reply was, Watch the helm and sails. Yonder squadron, Philippus said to the artist, was a part of his son's fleet. What brought it there was a mystery to him, too. After the early meal, the galley of Eumedes approached his father's trieme. Two other galleys, not much inferior in size, were behind, and probably fifty smaller vessels were moving about the mouth of the Nile and the whole dreary tongue of land. All belonged to the royal war fleet, and the deck of every one was crowded with armed soldiers. On one, a forest of lances bristled in the murky air, and upon its southward side, a row of archers, each man holding his bow in his hand, stood shoulder to shoulder. At what mark were their arrows to be aimed? The men on board the Galatea saw it distinctly, for the shore was swarming with human figures, here standing crowded closely together, like horses attacked by a pack of wolves, yonder running, singly or in groups, toward the sea or into the land. Dark spots on the light sand marked the places where others had thrown themselves on the ground, or kneeling, stretched out their arms as if in defense. Who were the people who populated this usually uninhabited, inhospitable place, so densely and in so strange a manner? This could not be distinguished from the Galatea with a naked eye, but Philippus thought that they were the Gauls, whose punishment had been entrusted to his son, and it soon proved that the old general was right. For just as the Galatea was approaching the shore, a band of twenty or thirty men plunged into the sea. They were Gauls. The light complexions and fair and red bristling hair showed this. Philippus knew them, and Hermon remembered the hordes of men who had rushed past him on the ride to Tennis. But the watchers were allowed only a short time for observation. Brief shouts of command rang from the ships near them. Longbows were raised in the air, and one after another of the light-hued forms in the water threw up its arms, sprang up, and sank motionlessly into the waves around them, which were dyed with a crimson stain. The artist shuddered, the great-haired general covered his head with his cloak, and the lady Thyone followed his example, uttering her son's name in a tone of loud lamentation. The Nauark pointed to the blackbirds in the air, and close above the shore and the water, but the shout, A boat from the admiral's galley, soon attracted the attention of the voyagers on the Galatea in a new direction. Thirty powerful rowers were urging the long, narrow boat toward them, Sometimes raised high on the crest of a mountain wave, sometimes sinking into the hollow, it completed its trip, and Eumedes mounted a swinging rope ladder to the Galatea's deck as nimbly as a boy. 
Here the young commander of the fleet hastened toward his parents. His mother sobbed aloud at his anything but cheerful greeting. Philippus said mournfully, I have heard nothing yet, but I know all. Father, replied the admiral, and raising the helmet from his head, covered with brown curls, he added mournfully, First, as to these men here, it will teach you to understand the other terrible things. Your uncle Archias's house was destroyed. Yonder men were the criminals. In the capital? Philippus exclaimed furiously, and Hermon cried in no less vehement excitement. How did my uncle get the ill will of these monsters? But as the vengeance is in your hands, they will atone for this breach of the peace. Severely, perhaps too severely, replied Eumedes gloomily, and Philippus asked his son how this evil deed could have happened, and the purport of the king's command. The admiral related what had occurred in the capital since his departure from Pitom. The four thousand Gauls who had been sent by King Antiochus to the Egyptian army as auxiliary troops against Cyrene refused, before reaching Peritonium on the western frontier of the Egyptian capital, to obey their Greek commanders. As they tried to force them to continue their march, the barbarians left them bound in the road. They spared their lives, but rushed with loud shouts of exultation toward Alexandria, which was close at hand. They had learned that the city was almost stripped of troops, and the most savage instinct urged them toward the wealthy capital. Without encountering any resistance, they broke through the necropolis into Alexandria, crossed the Draco Canal, and marched past the unfinished temple of Serapis, through the Rakotis. On the Canopic Way, they turned eastward and rushed through this main artery of traffic till, in the Brucaeum, they hastened in a northerly direction toward the sea. South of the theater of Dionysus they halted. One division turned toward the marketplace, another toward the royal palaces. Until they reached the Brucaeum, the hordes, so eager for booty, had refrained from plunder and pillage. Their whole strength was to be reserved, as the examination proved, for the attack upon the royal palaces. Several people who were thoroughly familiar with Alexandria had acted as guides. The instigator of the mutiny was said to be a Gaelic captain who had taken part in the surprise of Delphi. But, having ventured to punish the disobedient soldiers, he was killed. A bridge builder from the ranks, and his wife, who was not of Gaelic blood, had taken his place. This woman, a resolute and obstinate but rarely beautiful creature, when the division that was to attack the royal palaces, was marching past the house, which Hermon had occupied as the heir of Myrtilus, pressed forward herself across the threshold, to order the mutineers who followed her, to destroy and steal whatever came in their way. The bridge-builder went to the marketplace, and in pillaging the wealthy merchant houses, began with Archias's. Meanwhile, it was set on fire, and, with the large warehouses adjoining it, was burned to the foundation walls. But the robbers were to obtain no permanent success, either in the marketplace or in Myrtilus's house, which was diagonally opposite to the palestra. For General Satyrus, at the first tidings of their approach, had collected all the troops at his disposal, and the crews of several war galleys, and imprisoned the division in the marketplace as though in a mouse trap. The bands to which the woman belonged were forced by the cavalry into the palestra and the neighboring meander, 
and kept there until Eumedes brought reinforcements and compelled the Gauls to surrender. The king sent from Memphis the order to take the vanquished men to the tongue of land where they now were, and could easily be imprisoned between the sea and the Sabinic inland lake. They were guilty of death to the last man, and starvation was to perform the executioner's office upon them. He, Eumedes, the admiral concluded, was in the king's service, and must do what his commander-in-chief ordered. Duty, sighed Philippus, yet what a punishment. He held out his hand to his son as he spoke, but the Lady Thyone shook her head mournfully, saying, There are four thousand over yonder, and the philosopher and historian on the throne, the admirable art critic who bestows upon his capital and Egypt all the gifts of peace, who understands how to guard and develop it better than anyone else. Yet what influence the gloomy powers exert upon him? Here she hesitated, and went on in a low whisper. The blood of two brothers stains his hand and his conscience. The oldest, to whom the throne would have belonged, he exiled. And our friend, Demetrius Valerius, his father's noble counsellor. Because you, Philippus, interceded for him, though you were in a position of command, because Ptolemy knows your ability. You were sent to distant Pelusium, and there we should still be. Guard your tongue, wife, interrupted the old general in a tone of grave rebuke. The vipers on the crowns of Upper and Lower Egypt symbolize the king's swift power over life and death. To the Egyptians, the Philadelphi, Ptolemy, and Arsinoe are gods, and what cause have we to reproach them, except that they use their omnipotence? And mother, Eumedes eagerly added, do not the royal pair on the throne merely follow the example of far greater ones among the immortal gods? When the very Gauls who are devoted to death yonder, greedy for booty, attacked Delphi four years ago, it was the august brother and sister, Apollo and Artemis, who sent them to Hades with their arrows, while Zeus hurled his thunderbolts at them, and ordered heavy boulders to fall upon them from the shaken mountains. Many of the men over there fled from the destruction at Delphi. Unconverted, they added new crimes to the old ones, but now retribution will overtake them. The worse the crime, the more bloody the vengeance. Even the last must die, as my sovereign commands. Only I shall determine the mode of death according to my own judgment, and at the same time, mother, feel sure of your approval. Instead of lingering starvation, I shall use swift arrows. Now you know what you were obliged to learn. It would be wise, mother, for you to leave this abode of misery duty summons me to my ship. He held out his hand to his parents and Hermon as he spoke, but the latter clasped it firmly, exclaiming in a tone of passionate emotion, What is the name of the woman to whom, though she is not of their race, the lawless barbarians yielded? Ledska, replied the admiral. Hermon started as if stung by a scorpion, and asked, Where is she? On my ship, was the reply if she has not yet been taken ashore with the others. To be killed with the pitiable band there, cried Thyone angrily, looking her son reproachfully in the face. No, mother, replied Eumedes, she will be taken to the others under the escort of trustworthy men in order, perhaps, to induce her to speak. It must be ascertained whether there were accomplices in the attack on the royal palaces, and lastly, whence the woman comes. 
I can tell you that myself, replied Hermann. Allow me to accompany you. I must see and speak to her. The Arachne of Tennis? asked Thyone. Hermann's mute nod of assent answered the question, but she exclaimed, The unhappy woman, who called down the wrath of Nemesis upon you, and who has now herself fallen a prey to the avenging goddess, what do you want with her? Hermann bent down to his old friend and whispered, To lighten her terrible fate, if it is in my power. Go then, replied the matron, and turned to her son, saying, Let Hermann tell you how deeply this woman has influenced his life, and, when her turn comes, think of your mother. She is a woman, replied Eumedes, and the king's mandate only commands me to punish men. Besides, I promised her indulgence if she would make a confession. And she, asked Hermann, neither by threats nor promises, answered the admiral. Can this sinister, beautiful creature be induced to speak? Certainly not, said the artist, and a smile of satisfaction flitted over his face. End of Book 2, Chapter 15